Good morning, everyone. I'm Julia Hobsbawm of Editorial Intelligence, and I'd like to welcome you all and to thank PR Week and Haymarket very much for being our partner on this, our fourth event. Basically, we're an information company, and we produce data about the comment media, and we keep that data live with events such as this, which are topical comment discussions, which are podcast and in this case, on the record. And without further ado, I'd like to hand you over to Danny Rogers, the editor of PR Week, to um, introduce the panel. Thanks, Julia. Good morning, everyone, and uh, welcome to Haymarket Publishing, up here in uh, Heseltine Heights. Well, it's certainly a newsworthy time to be uh, looking at the relationship between the monarchy and the media. Just a week or so after the Queen's 80th birthday celebrations, inevitably such a landmark threw up a broad spectrum of comment and opinion in the media. Uh, In some places we saw obvious affection for the royal family, even reverence. In others we saw um, the Queen's determination to go on as a snub to Charles and some shouted even louder than ever for the abolition of the monarchy wholesale. We have a distinguished panel here this morning to look more closely at the state of royal comment, how these views evolve and whether these views even matter. So before I introduce our speakers, a reminder that this morning's events are very much on the record. Uh, Our panellists will speak for no more than five minutes, please. And the event is very much for all of you this morning, so please be prepared to ask some questions once the panellists have had their say. In terms of royal reputation, we couldn't really have two better people here this morning. The people on my right, Penny Russell-Smith and Paddy Harvison. And it's actually the first time that either of them have gone on the record to talk about their roles and their relationship with the royal family. On the record? Right, let's go. <laughs> <laughs> I'll join you. <laughs> Penny, on my right, has been Press and Communications Secretary for the Queen since 2002 and has worked for Her Majesty for 13 years now. She started out in publishing before taking PR roles at Department of Transport and the Foreign and Commonwealth Office. Penny has been praised for the media's largely positive attitude to the Queen's recent celebrations. Paddy, on my right again, is somewhat newer to the world of the royals. He's been um, Communications Secretary the Prince of Wales since 2004, having previously worked for Manchester United, where he was Director of Communications. Of course, he worked there for the King of Old Trafford, Sir Alex Ferguson, which must have been a similarly tough brief. Prior to that, Paddy worked for Financial Times, uh, first as a stock market reporter, but later as the FT's first ever sports correspondent. Now, Penny and Paddy are very brave to show up today because on my left, uh, representing the Royal Commentators, we have three highly reputed journalists, two of which hold distinctly Republican views. Mary Riddell, (coughs) on my left, is an established commentator for The Observer, as well as a popular interviewer for the Daily Mail and the New Statesman magazine. She writes regularly on constitutional reform and was a key part of the Fabian Commission on the Future of the Monarchy. At the start of this year, Mary wrote, Chile and Liberia have elected female heads of state, so why do we persist with a very British anachronism that is the royal family? Then bringing an international perspective in the centre here, we're pleased to welcome Catherine Mayer, who was born in the US and is a senior editor on Time magazine. As well as a regular contributor to British broadsheets on all sorts of current affairs issues, Catherine makes frequent appearances on radio and TV as well. She's an advisor to the Commission for Africa, the initiative co-founded by Tony Blair, Gordon Brown and Sir Bob Geldof. Catherine recently interviewed Prince Andrew on the Queen's 80th birthday celebrations. And finally, on the extreme left is... (laughs) Physically, that is. uh, We have the remarkable Yasmin Alibi-Brown, who's economist for The Independent and The Evening Standard. Yasmin, who came to this country in 1972 from Uganda brings a very multicultural view on our monarchy. Given an MBE for services to journalism in 2001, Yasmin has recently been staging her own one-woman show, which was commissioned and directed by the Royal Shakespeare Company. She calls for an elected head of state, and once wrote, it's extraordinary that in the 21st century we're still subjects and not citizens. If we must have the royalty, then let's have them as a decorative piece. So, our journalist panellists are going to speak first today followed by our royal commentators. And I'd like to start, if I can, with Mary. 
Thanks very much. I'd like just to clarify a bit. I'm not a a die-hard Republican, though I do occasionally sort of veer that way in frustration. I I would say that, you know, I'm I'm very keen on a a slimmed-down and and reformed monarchy. Um, uh, During the 80th birthday celebrations, of course, we, we saw a huge amount of coverage, but those arguments, I don't think, were very much to the fore. Sometimes those outside Britain have a clearer um, perspective on how we comment on our institutions. So here's Alan Cowell of the New York Times writing after the Queen's birthday and the newspaper reports and television documentaries it inspired. The monarchy says it has been given a virtual free pass. Comments on the royal family follow certain rules. Some commentators are critical of the younger royals. Some are contemptuous about the shortfalls of Prince Charles and gratuitously unpleasant about the Duchess of Cornwall in the days when she was still Camilla Parker Bowles, the most reviled woman in Britain and a legitimate target for insults and bread rolls. All that's deemed fair game, very unfairly, I think, often. Um, But you can't still imply any criticism of the Queen, as I know from old experience, without attack, attracting a ticky off from more respectful columnists and about 40,000 emails from South Dakota saying you should try living with President Bush instead. Um, that's a fair point, I think. The Queen's done a, a very good job and her communications team the leading members of whom are on this platform, have done a magnificent one. But they're helped, I think, by the gullibility or the disinterest of British commentators in the main. Journalists who work for grand titles are very happy to bend their knee and buy all manner of myths. Um, Thrift is just one of those. The Queen enjoys many millions of the public purse. And yet she's written about as a parsimonious old person who saves string from parcels, irons her Christmas wrapping paper switches off the lights and, for all I know, keeps her coal in the bath. Um, Royal reporting at at the gossipy end is often very sharp. Commentary, I think, often tends towards the bland. I think partly that's a sort of sentiment or self-delusion. The British, at some level, are still in love with the old Stanley Baldwin, John Major, George Orwell idea of um, cricket on the village green and old maids cycling to communion and so on. And those ideas cohere much more easily around an idealised monarchy than around some venal head of state with a chequered past, you know, anyone for President Prescott. Um, It's also because being rude about an elderly woman seems very bad form. I talked to a TV director at the time of the 80th birthday, and he said it was quite hard even to make an impartial programme because almost everybody uh, he interviewed, loyal or disloyal, um, said the same things about duty and service and and, and all that kind of thing. And I think interviewing royalty is is rather similar. I remember a party that the Queen had at Windsor uh, very cleverly at the uh, time of the Jubilee and invited all the old hard-nosed Republicans from the Independent and the Guardian, the Observer, and once there they were sort of completely transformed. You know, they sort of admired all the pictures and shuffled a bit and hung on Prince Andrew's every word. And it was very interesting... Um, illustration, I think, that deference is not half as dead as people often think. I think also there's a, there's a form of snobbery at play here too. The commentariat tends to think the monarchy unimportant, cultural adjunct, a bit like EastEnders or Coronation Street. And the very last thing, they seem unable to distinguish between, indivi- the, between the individual and the institutional <laughs> Personal abuse is one thing, but it seems kind of bizarre to think that a constitutional arrangement that depends on goodwill for its very existence should uh, deserve uncritical fealty. I'd argue the monarchy is actually better served by the few of us who try to be constructively critical. We take it seriously. Um, The monarchy is at the pinnacle of our unwritten constitution. It's powerful, influential, and I think very out of date. The Fabian Commission has been mentioned Um, And a couple of years ago, it produced a list of really very moderate reforms, which Buckingham Palace said it had noted with interest. But nothing's changed. I mean, the sort of things we suggested were a single funding stream to make the royals more accountable, regularising of tax bills, differentiating what belongs to the Queen and her son and what belongs to the British people. Um, 
There's been no change to the Act of Settlement, which forbids anyone but Protestants from taking the throne, and male primogeniture still applies in a country where sex discrimination (coughs) is illegal. Private members' bills on reform always sink without trace, and the Blair administration, as Labour governments often do, has seemed almost, uh, well, actually very much less proactive than the monarchy itself. Partly I do blame commentators for this. We see ourselves as the gatekeepers of national interest. So why is such a vital vital issue as the monarchy uh, exempted from proper scrutiny? Things do change very fast. I mean, on the monarchy, the mood is so volatile and fragile. And I do wonder how much time the Queen and her excellent communications team worry about what happens next. The consensus is that the Queen's done a fine job, that nothing must change in her lifetime... But I think the problems of such a long stasis is that when Charles takes the throne, held in much less reverence than his mother, that he won't have any of the framework of an accountable and modern monarchy to support him. There will be no reformist tradition in his own family for him to build on. And then I think the dogs really will start to bark. Thank you very much. Thanks very much, Mary. Uh, Catherine, would you like to... Sure. I have to say, I think I'm on this panel under slightly false pretenses because I'm clearly sort of being billed as the quasi-monarchist here. And, in fact, I do harbour some Republican instincts. Uh, I have to say these are usually fairly quickly quashed by the opinion polls here that suggest that Britons would be quite likely to install Richard Branson or even Jordan as their elected head of state. And... um, I also look at the way that Labour has tackled attempts at constitutional reform and I worry about their ability to carry through something as large as this with any uh, sensible conclusion. So, uh, but um, what, I, what I would also say is that and recently I went to a function at Buckingham Palace. I went out on the street, flagged down a black cab and... Uh, The cab driver, when he understood after arguing with me that I really did want to drive in through the front gates and that I had a little sticker with me that would enable him to do this, uh, suddenly changed manner, you know, this big-shouldered, truculent man turned to mush, pulled over to the side of the road, produced a mobile camera with a phone in it and insisted that I take his photograph as we drove through the front gates, which involved him actually turning around and driving backwards. It was kind of amazing we didn't crash. But my point here is that I don't think that all Britons are raving monarchists either, but I do think that very little of the sort of awe and excitement around the royal family ever translates into coverage or commentary here. And I actually think a lot of the royal coverage is just deeply weird because there is so much unspoken in the way that people cover the royals here. There are all these visceral <coughs> responses and sort of unspoken resentments and tensions. The British like to think that the class system here, if not dead, has mutated and moved on to a kind of meritocracy. But I think in the print press it's still incredibly visible and that, in effect, the broadsheets are sort of like loose patricians. Then you have your mid-market titles, who are the sort of socially conservative middle class, and the red tops, who are still pursuing this discourse of resentment against privilege. And a lot of that actually feeds into coverage, whether it be reporting or commentary, but it means that there's a huge amount of editorialising in a lot of what is supposedly reported feature writing. The tabloids cover the royals the way they cover all celebrity. Um, with the, I mean, they do give a much uh, better ride to, to the Queen, her mother, the sainted Diana. But for the rest, the tabloids are out operating on their usual them and us principles, resentful and despising the fame that they themselves helped to create and maintain. And, of course, the royals in tabloid terms are utterly undeserving being born a Windsor is even more random than securing a place on Big Brother. But the, the thing about the tabloids is that they do actually take the royals seriously in terms of devoting resources to them. They actually cover them properly. 
And the reason that I think that royal reporting in the UK is pretty shabby is because the broadsheets in the main have wimped out of this. The thing is that a lot of thoughtful journalists are Republican by instinct, but their Republicanism, rather than being openly articulated, tends to make them shy away from this subject. It's something that Mary touched on. They, they think that the subject of the royal family is inherently frivolous. And obviously there are honourable exceptions, including Mary and Yasmin, and there was a great polemic by Jonathan Friedland in The Guardian recently for the Queen's 80th birthday. But most broadsheets have a really lamentable history of covering the royals, and it's true of their celebrity coverage in general. They feel that they have to cover these topics, except for the FT, which very sensibly just says, no, this isn't our bag, so they don't. But they don't really put their best people on it. They don't devote the resources to it, so they end up following the tabloids with the distortions that that entails. And you saw that very clearly with the breakup of Diana and Charles's marriage, where it was the tabloids who led the way there. And the broadsheets kind of trailed behind. I mean, admittedly, I think the Sunday Times were the ones who bought, bought up Andrew Morton's book. But basically, the tabloids were on to that story way earlier, covered it much better. As you've gathered, I'm pretty unimpressed by the state of royal reporting in this country, even though I think in many respects British journalism remains an international gold standard. And I'm not trying to say that royal reporting in other countries is great. It can be remarkably silly. But it doesn't have these hidden undercurrents that, that are so kind of weirdly distorting in this country. Obviously, every country has its own history with the royals and its idiosyncrasies. When I was working for a serious German news magazine it didn't take me very long to realise that the Germans have an incredibly proprietorial sense about the Windsors, that they're basically still German. <laughs> but there wasn't a question that, as a serious news magazine, we would cover the big royal events or the, the things that had constitutional implica <coughs> implications or just caused these huge convulsions of feeling in this country. Because it, for us, it was clear. It was part of the UK story. It's what makes this country strange and interesting and a bit eccentric. One question I really never could answer, though, was why people do get so exercised about abolition of the monarchy here and yet continue to uh, participate in a political system in which there is an unelected, anachronistic, crony-stuffed upper house, something the Germans really don't get. But anyway, it is much easier for the foreign media. There's much less baggage... There's also just less interest. Um, since Diana's death, that's obviously true here, but particularly true abroad, that there is a lot less interest in the remaining royals. That does mean that there are foreign media, just as there are British media, who try and eke out her circulation-boosting legacy by still printing conspiracy theories about what happened in the tunnel. At time, we write about the royals very infrequently, but I think when we do, we do it very well and we do it substantially and seriously. We just did this, this one um, on the Queen, pegged her 80th birthday. We got um, good access, thanks Penny, very essential in something like this. We devoted really major resources to it. Our London Bureau Chief, Jeff McAllister, was working on this story for months and I was working on this story, a lot of other people were. So even though it is, yes, it is a light topic, but we treated it just as seriously as we would any other news story. Um, what Jeff came out with was something that was very elegant, very incisive, very witty. But it is also true that there is very little negative to say about the Queen. Even Republicans, the consensus is she does her job very well even while they're questioning whether that job should exist. Now, I think the piece that we wrote, that Jeff wrote, is something that very few British journalists would have dared to write because it is so balanced. Can we now move on to uh, Yasmin, please? I returned my MBE, by the way, uh, I, which I should never have taken. It was a stupid thing. 
for a Republican to accept it, and I returned it over the war in Iraq, and, and because it was the more honest thing to do. As an outsider, and actually, you know, if, if you are an immigrant from another part, you are always an outsider in this country. Uh, you can never really belong. It's a very advantageous position, really, an insider-outsider. And I look at the, the... I mean, when I was very young, during the coronation in the hot sun of Kampala, I remember outside, being outside on the streets with my little flag and a chocolate, a special chocolate that had been given to us for the coronation, which, of course, melted in our hands. You know, we were trained to love the Queen and the royal family from a very early age. It didn't work in my case, partly because, I, I suppose, it makes no sense. It absolutely makes no sense to me. But I have to concede that unlike Jonathan Friedland's piece, which more or less argued that the Queen is a good egg and has done a, a good job, and when she goes, we can get rid of it, the, in, the institution. I think he's wrong. I think I have to concede defeat. There is never going to be a republic in this country. I think we, can, we will be the fringe voice, and an important fringe voice, but after the events of the last five, six years, I have to concede that this, the soul of this country, the heart of this country, which I live in but am not of, will never be Republican. And so what do we do about it? So as a commentator, I'm constantly questioning my position. Do I just give vent to my own despair over this madness? Is that what I'm paid for? Or is it my responsibility to actually try and understand better this thing that I find foolish beyond belief. Um, in India, in parts of India, in UP, there are, there are villages which strangely have more women, girls than boys. Usually it's the other way around because they've murdered the girls. Um, but in some places there is this imbalance. And because marriage is such a key institution by which these places survive, the girls are married to trees in order to keep the institution they're married to trees in the village because although it's not a real husband the institution survives and I think of the Roth institution <laughs> that is what I think it is it is the tree um, and it is terribly important and I'm not being I'm really not being sarcastic I'm so discouraged in the last um, and, and since the 80th birthday, since the Jubilee, you know, I'm backing the wrong horse here. There are many reasons why I think it is a foolish attachment and it does not represent what we have become. One of my books called Who Do We Think We Are, which is examining the, the British nation, had a cover, and I think it was your predecessor, was it Simon? Who, who uh, Simon... The com one of the communications... Lewis, Simon Lewis, Simon Walker's Simon, from the Hill. Someone, no, is he here? No. <laughs> <laughs> Was it you? Or some, one of you. The cover has a picture of the Queen, but I've turned it, we turned her dusky, sort of half-Aborigine, if you like, and she looked very good. <laughs> it, was an in, it was a genuine question, asking who we are and who we think we are, who we have become as a nation and how we reflect ourselves back at us, and how impossible this image is really, even you know, 400, 500 years since black and Asian people arrived here. Remember, it was Queen Elizabeth I who came out with the uh, most rabid anti-black immigration statement all those centuries ago, saying, I have noticed there are far too many blackamoors upon my island, and they must be banished henceforth. They never went. Um, but uh, so it seems to me that the way we are and how we represent ourselves makes no sense even with the kind of in many ways quite benign royal family which doesn't really have that much power, it has considerable power it seems to me if this is the centerpiece, the symbol of our unwritten constitution we should be really ashamed because what does it say whether you are stupid or ugly or 
incapable, if you have this blood in your veins, people will bow in front of you. I find that so unacceptable in this century, even in the last century. Yet this is where we are. Um, as an outsider, I remember the history of India with my teachers, my British teachers telling me the reason they got rid of the kings and maharajas of, of India is because of the idolatry of the people. You know, this was such an, an, uh, uh, an insult to the lot of the normal, ordinary poor, impoverished Indians, and here I come, and the idolatry, if, if anything, is more senseless, more unquestioning. Rule of law, we, you know, because we are not citizens, the entire criminal justice system is, you know, it feeds into this, this um, central icon. What if we have a killer king, I often think? What if we have a proven murderer, prince, in the current royal family. What happens technically? They cannot go to court, am I right? Under the present system because they are above the law. This is a, these are just questions I throw at you that our institutions depend on a certain swallowing of blood, right? Of people being above the law, of class, of inherited superiority, not just privilege but inherent superiority, even when all evidence tells you that quite a lot of people currently on the civil list would not get a job in a supermarket, really, if they were fairly to compete. I just put it to you. Is this what we are, and is this how we want to represent ourselves? Okay. But I have to... Well, I want to make a couple of very quick points. But if I have accepted defeat, that this is the soul of, the of where Britain lies... Is it our role as Republican commentators to listen to the people or to push for a, you know, a republic which will never come? I have no answer to that question. Perhaps you can help. Thanks very much, Yasmin. Okay, we've heard the uh, commentators' viewpoints. Um, seems our commentators are often self-deluded, cowed, gullible, obviously frustrated at times. But what about the people who are responsible for the royal reputations? Penny Russell-Smith, would you like to uh, give Thank your view? Thank you. It may perhaps um, surprise everyone here that um, I, and I dare say Paddy, will agree with a number of points which you've uh, just heard made by journalists. Um, I don't actually propose to dwell very long on the Queen's 80th birthday um, because um, a, a lot of the coverage, fortunately, was very positive, um, largely due to a lot of hard work um, over a, a many, many years by the Queen and the people who, who actually work for her, and also because I think it sounds um, terribly complacent, which is something that we are simply never are um, at Buckingham Palace. I'd rather like, actually, very quickly to compare and contrast uh, the media coverage of the Queen's 70th birthday and her 80th birthday, because I think that graphically demonstrates Mary's excellent point about the ephemeral nature of swings and roundabouts of coverage of institutions. Um, the 70th birthday, if you remember, passed almost without comment. Such comment as was, uh, was extremely negative. Um, this was took place just after the Princess of Wales had done her panorama interview, and that was the sort of mood set for the time. And, of course, um, just over a year later, with the death of the princess, uh, the very qualities which uh, a large number of the media have praised recently, uh, the Queen's sense of duty, her um, determination to provide a sense of continuity and stability in times of change, were cited as weaknesses, as faults, as something to be corrected. Having said that, the people who worked at the palace um, uh, and uh, at that particular time uh, were acutely aware that there were lessons to be learnt. Uh, one of the great merits of the Queen is that she says what she means and she means what she says. And uh, you may remember at the time that she herself said that there were lessons to be learnt uh, from the princess and, and her life. Um, and that was not an empty phrase. And some of those lessons that were learned, um, uh, were a very important part was played by the media. Uh, some of the criticism very harshly put, but uh, nevertheless, um, however harshly put, um, there, was some very constructive, there were some very constructive points made in it, and they were duly taken on board. The paradox that we have uh, with a, a, an unelected head of state is that they have to work 
as hard and the presentation has to be as carefully planned uh, as if a head of state were elected. A constitutional monarchy is based on consent and an important part of that consent, indeed central to it, is the media perception, interpretation of the institution and the way it works. And of course the way that the constitutional monarchy works is not automatically front page. Um, the Queen's constitutional role, yes, you'll get the occasional photograph on the front page of the, the Queen sitting there in her crown at state opening of Parliament. But you do not automatically get coverage of the Queen receiving new ambassadors. You do not automatically get coverage in national media of the Queen supporting the voluntary sector. You do indeed get occasionally um, the Queen's role recognising achievement through investitures, uh, mostly through um, recognition of well-known personalities at national media level and, of course, the, the um, people who work in communities at local level. Uh, but this is not automatically front-page news. And one of the challenges that we have is, as, as, as um, people who are responsible for the presentation of the institution to the media, is to actually engage media and public interest in this work. And this is before, by the way, uh, you consider two other very important parts of, of the Queen's role, uh, which is to endeavour to reflect national identity, taking on board Yasmin's excellent point. This is a multi-faith, multi-ethnic society, and a head of state has to recognise that. I believe that the Queen has done her best to recognise that through many, many decades of her work for the Commonwealth, and indeed that the work she does at the moment with visiting very different centres of faith worship and the values that she stands for, particularly that of tolerance for other faiths and other cultures. The other challenge that she faces is uh, representing stability in a time of rapid change. Uh, to do that, you have to change yourself. Um, if you look um, at the beginning of the Queen's reign to, to, to now, uh, for example, taking garden parties at the beginning of the Queen's reign, you had a very conventional uh, presentation of court debutantes, uh, which Queen Victoria would have probably recognised, to today, where people who come to garden parties are people from all levels of life, many of whom have devoted many years of service to the community, and this is a way of thanking them um, on behalf of the country. I mentioned engaging media and public interest, um, and this is one of the lessons that we also learnt from the 90s. Um, the Queen's work is not automatically going to, to, to arouse media interest. We therefore have decided as a conscious policy to increase media access to the Queen's work, particularly inside palaces, so that people could see that when she was inside palaces, she was still receiving guests, still entertaining visitors, still engaging in her work, meeting everybody from bishops to prime ministers, uh, from, from senior military officers to politicians, etc. We also needed to engage fresh thinking on her external visits. Yes, she still does the traditional visits of schools and hospitals, and these are duly covered uh, by regional media, but they also include now drop-in centres, shopping malls, um, and other areas of interest which we believe uh, demonstrate the Queen's very real interest in, in in the way the nation um, and people operate. Another lesson was more innovative use of the royal palaces. Uh, the Golden Jubilee concerts were a very good case in point. Uh, we're currently working very hard on the Children's Literature Party in June. We also engage in theme days, which have a double uh, benefit for us of uh, demonstrating a coherent interest in a particular theme, whether it's emergency services, financial services, theatre and so on, or indeed design. We had a very successful one uh, a couple of years ago, where some of you may remember remember a, um, a Concord nose cone coming to Buckingham Palace to form part of a display, a celebration of British design. Another lesson was increased transparency and accountability in certain key areas, uh, raw finance being one of them. Um, and one of the approaches that we take is a remorseless in in insistence on accuracy. Um, and I have to take Yasmin up on a point. Uh, the civil list is indeed provided um, to, to give public money for the Queen as head of state, but only the Queen and the Duke of Edinburgh are actually on this civil list. The Queen herself pays for all other members of the royal family uh, to do their official costs. Civil list is only for official costs for the Queen. It does not represent an income for her.
I'd just like to finish, because I'm acutely aware my five minutes is up, just to um, make a reference point to the evolving triangular relationship between the media, the public, and the monarchy as an institution. I've touched on the regional media, but I believe firmly that the new media also present a challenge for this triangular relationship. Uh, We are working hard within our budgetary constraints on a royal website uh, where we encourage the public to come direct to the website for information. We encourage as far as we can a certain amount of interactivity, but this is merely the beginning. Um, I believe that with podcasts, broadband television and blogs that this entire dynamic between the media, the public and the monarchy will shift again uh, with the rise of of what I think has, has been termed citizen journalists. And to sum up, really, I think I started saying that I was not complacent, and I will conclude by saying that that is still my belief at the end of this talk, um, that we must keep our ears open as an institution to the present, keep a keen eye on the future in order for the monarchy to thrive and survive um, in a very rapidly changing media climate. Thank you. Thanks very much, Penny. Paddy. Thanks, Penny. (coughs) Thanks, Penny. Uh, I was interesting comments already, and, and Mary's point about us not coming as an institution under proper public scrutiny sort of, I would say it doesn't feel like that if you sit where we sit um, and one of the things that struck me after I left my last employee at Manchester United where we were always on the back pages and often on the front pages and often on the middle pages when it was a bit publicly quoted company, where we were never was actually on the comment pages, as interesting enough even though it was a hugely popular institution hardly ever anyone commented on us, whether it was in editorials or in opinion by well-known uh, commentators, but of course in this job we are often on the front page, never on the back page, sadly, mm-hmm. although Prince William may change that with uh, his presidency of the FA, but we're almost always on the comment pages. There is a huge amount of comments and opinion. Um, editorials <laughs> com- uh, are quite common, and particularly, certainly, uh, opinion pieces by well-known and very colourful writers. So there is plenty of scrutiny, and I think a lot of that comment, I mean, if you look in the last, um, just in my short period working for, for the royal family, uh, when the Prince of Wales married the Duchess of Cornwall, it, it, it generated a lot of heat and a lot of nonsense, but also a lot of very serious and a debate about the constitutional role and some very serious issues about marriage and about the church and about the prince's position within that. If you look more recently at, um, uh, at our, our, the Clarence House's court case against the Associated Newspaper, a huge amount of comment and opinion about the role of the Prince of Wales, about the role of the monarch, about how he fills his role. And then more re- most recently, of course, the, the, the Queen's 80th birthday. I mean, we read it avidly. It's in our cuttings every morning. All the opinion and comment that went on about that. And it wasn't just, you know, hasn't the Queen does a marvellous job. It's also about the future. And, you know, I felt that very, very significantly at, over at Clarence House because they quite rightly asked questions about where next because I think an 80th birthday makes you think about the, about the, the immediate and long-term future. So there is, there is a huge amount of comment. And I think a lot of it is very good comment, very welcome comment for us and, and often much more positive than we might sometimes uh, realise. Um, and I think the good thing for people in our position about about comment, and we're talking much more about comment than news here, is that it's welcome because it makes us think harder about ourselves and how we explain ourselves and I think it puts us on our toes at all times and I think um, having, to, having to argue our case collectively or individually is very important. Um, I'd like to think it sharpens our act. I, I hope to think it does anyway. And certainly we do more explaining than ever before. Um, Penny's touched on this and in, you know, again I haven't been working for the family for that long but even in the short time I've been there there's been changes. Um, both institutions in terms of Buckingham Palace and, and at Clarence House publish annual reports and very detailed annual reports. I mean we lay out before the press and therefore the public the Prince of Wales's accounts you know, and he doesn't get any money from the civil list either. He gets all his income from the uh, Dutch of Cornwall apart from a certain amount of money for royal travel and security and Um, upkeep of the palaces Uh, and we detail how he spends his money and there aren't many individuals and certainly there are no politicians who detail to the public how they spend their money of course his money his income is also taxed which is also important to mention at the same rate as any ordinary citizen so and these reflect big changes in 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 the last 10-20 years certainly before my time but changes in the accountability certainly the financial accountability of the royal family and also in, in you know, how the royal family spends what public money there is to be spent. Um, there aren't many institutions in national life where the cost to the exchequer has, has dropped significantly, and I mean significantly, Penny will know the numbers better than I, over a period of 10-plus years. I mean, I think it's more than halved, I think, if you look at the actual amount that the exchequer puts into 
into the, um, the upkeep of the monarchy. And I think that's a remarkable record when you compare it against other institutions in national life. We do endless amounts of press briefings, as you can imagine. Um, uh, you know, we explain more and more on the record whenever we have a significant event, we call the press in. So we are putting ourselves up for challenge and for scrutiny, and I think that is a, a very good thing. And, of course, what we have... We have our websites, which are open and accessible to everyone, but what we have more than anything is media access to everything we do. And I think perhaps other than maybe in, in government, there are very few areas of public life, national life, where there is so much day-to-day -day scrutiny. We, the Prince of Wales does over 500 engagements a year. Other members of the Royal Family do another 2,000-plus. Almost every single one of those, there are media present. We have an obligation to provide access to the media. So there are enormous amounts of opportunities to not just report but to challenge what we do. And we welcome that challenge. I think it's absolutely only right and proper in a society like ours that an institution like ours at the centre of national life is, is challenged and held to account. I think if I have one sort of big question to ask, and I think it's been touched upon um, by Yasmin, when you said it, in a way it makes no sense, Yasmin, to you, why the, the, the monarchy has, has been so resilient and, and the public supports them is I think there is a, an imbalance between, between media comments, and I'm talking specifically about newspaper editorials and particularly commentators within newspapers, an imbalance between that and public opinion. And uh, there's, a, there's one uh, well-known pollster who always, always makes this point, which is that probably the most consistent line in opinion polling in, in modern history, or in all opinion polling history, because it's only essentially a modern phenomenon, is the support for the monarchy. And I recognise there's a difference between perhaps the support for the monarchy and support for the Queen herself, and you have to understand those two issues. But it is enormously consistent. And yet you look at media opinion within that, and it's, it does not reflect that. And I think the point that my pollster friend says is quite simply is that there is a disproportionate number of Republicans or critical individuals within the media. And that's only right. I think you see that in all walks of life, that, that, that journalists are by nature questioning and critical, and, that, and absolutely should be. As a former journalist, I think that's, that's the role that... It, that journalists have. But I think that does lead to this sort of skewing of the national debate, of the public conversation. And certainly the, the impressions that we have when we work um, with the royal family is that we obviously attend a lot of engagements with them and we do a lot of things where they're present. And the point that, um, uh, that I think Catherine was making was about the excitement, the sort of wow factor, which is not often very often reflected. But I think you see it on TV more than you do in newspapers, is that the public are still excited by the royal family and are still engaged with them, perhaps not on the same vast numbers, certainly in public engagements, that we might have seen in the past. But certainly in terms of the, uh, I think, the, um, the fondness and, and, dare I say, love for the, for the, certainly for the Queen, and I think for the institution is greater than anyone ever really realises. And I'll finish on a sort of personal anecdote with that regard. One of the first things I did in this job was attend with the Prince of Wales the first um, British citizenship ceremony, um, which was a fascinating affair because it was, a, it was up at Brent Town Hall, which is not the sort of environment that you would normally think that members of the royal family would go down a, a storm. And um, it was obviously a political idea, this citizenship ceremony created by the Home Secretary. I think a very good one to give people a chance, new, mem new members of, uh, new holders of passports to feel part of uh, welcome in this country. And the Home, home Secretary was there and the Brent the mayor was there and a council leader was there and a whole host of dignitaries and the Prince of Wales attended as a representation as a representative of obviously of the Queen and there were speeches and there was music and uh, the Prince of Wales spoke rather nicely I thought and uh, amusingly about being British and, and what it meant and welcome and welcome to our country and also welcome to what the new citizens could bring to our country it was also a very important point to make and it was very nice of the Guardian afterwards to sort of in an editorial to say he did so well that in fact they finally found a job for him to do and that perhaps the Prince of Wales could attend one of these every day and he'd finally have something useful to do in his life which we took note of it is still the only one he's attended but afterwards what struck me was there were 19 new citizens who came from all parts of the, the world mostly from ex-Commonwealth countries Sorry, they are they're Commonwealth countries now, but they were ex-citizens of those Commonwealth countries by that point. And in the sort of reception afterwards, there was a real, you know, dare I say it, buzz around the Prince of Wales. There was a real excitement about meeting the Prince of Wales that was perhaps lacking in other members of the dignitaries there who were sort of on one side of the room nursing their coffee and their jammy dodger while everyone was on the other side hovering around the Prince of Wales. And uh, as we left, the, the final image that struck me as we left this building, anyone knows Brent Town Hall, but it's a very long 
low-slung building of about two or three storeys and, and probably not a building the Prince of Wales would be ad- admiring of. And as we drove along the full length of it to get out, there were all these people, all the windows were open with all the members of staff all waving cheerily at the Prince of Wales as he left. And it, it just was an incredibly powerful image that still has a role in representing the nation at the citizenship ceremony but also still has a power, you know, an appeal. And I think that is perhaps, if I were to make one point, not always reflected in, in the comment in the media. Paddy, thanks very much. Right, at this point, I'd like to um, open up questions to the floor. Um, before you ask a question, if you just say who you are and who the question's addressed to, please. Sarah Modlock, I'm a freelance journalist. I wondered what the panel felt about the, um, the way the media seems to forget or chooses to forget that although the civil list is somewhere in the region of 36 million a year, actually the Crown estate surplus of 185 million goes straight to the Treasury for the benefit of taxpayers and how frustrating it is that that's, all, that's never mentioned as much as it should be, and probably a lot of people don't realise that that's the case. Well, I think that's a very good point. Uh, I would say only that the Crown estate surplus, as far as I'm aware, and, and Penny and Paddy will put me right if I'm wrong, it isn't actually the Queen's sort of private money. The Crown estates are uh, the nation's property, not, n- not that of the monarch. But I think your general point is really interesting. It's one Paddy raised... Very well, too. I I mean, I I think the the trouble is it's all very complex. You know, the civil list is just, of course, as Penny says, the Queen and Duke of Edinburgh. But then you've got grant in aid and so on, and, of course, the the Prince of Wales, um, you know, relies on the Duchy of Cornwall. But, again, the Duchy of Cornwall doesn't actually belong to him. It belongs to the nation. I think it was, you know, in the time of the Black Prince or something when the Duchy of Cornwall was first used to, 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 to fund the Prince of Wales. And I think the Common Select Committee have, you know, ha- had some queries over uh, not Buckingham Palace accounting, but but, um, but Clarence House accounting. So I think oh, my oh, very... Sorry, that was the Duchy Estates accounting, not Clarence House's the accounting. The Duchy Estates, I'm yeah. so sorry, I stand corrected. <laughs> but, but I think uh, my, my simple reply is this isn't, you know, the Queen's personal money that the Treasury is nicking off her, very far from it. I think um, the complication such as this arises is the historic origin of what these estates and indeed the hereditary revenues uh, were designed for, which was simply the government of the country Um, in the days when the monarch was the head of the government, the executive head of government. This money was used to meet the cost of sending ambassadors overseas and of administering the country. Um, I think it has evolved to to today. Um, I do not regard it. It may be slightly complicated, but most members of the public if they go online, can readily see for themselves exactly how much money is allocated under each heading, uh, which, um, you know, 30, 40 years ago uh, would not have been the case because this money would have been um, buried in within depart- separate departmental budgets. And, in fact, it's been a conscious initiative by the household since the 1980s to actually bring uh, the accountability in-house, if you will, to match operational and accounting responsibilities so that everybody can see, and quite rightly so, I I've worked very hard on this myself, so that everybody can see at a glance uh, where this money goes, because public money is public money. It's come from somewhere, it's come from the taxpayer, and they have a right to know how their money is spent. On the point of the, the Duchy of Cornwall, it is actually a private estate. It's not actually belongs to the nation, but you, you, there is a debate perhaps to be had about 14th century distribution of land and property, which by all means have, but probably not now. Um, and obviously he's taxed on all that income, and also he runs the whole estate as, uh, it, it's a, in a sustainable fashion, promoting environmental practices wherever he can. So we'd like to think it's a very responsible stewardship of that estate, and he cannot gain any uh, of the capital. He has to pass it down intact to his... Um, to his son. Okay, thanks very much. It's interesting. I agree with what you say that it is um, not the Queen's, you know, uh, private land. But the deal that was struck originally with, with George III is that he got the civil list in return for handing over his lands. My understanding is that each new monarch has the chance to then turn that agreement around. So Prince Charles or Prince William, whoever comes up next, um, my understanding is they will have the opportunity to actually say, "Thank you very much. I'll have the 185 million. You can have the civil list back." So it'd be interesting if that um, ever happens. Surely we want more as as citizens. I imagine we are still citizens, although we're called subjects. It's not just what we know about the accounts, but whether we approve as well. So knowing isn't where it it has to stop. I want to know why 
Prince Charles, for example, needed to take over Clarence House. Were there not enough palaces in his life? So it's not just a question of opening up the accounts, but asking some quite valid questions about the amount of luxury or the number of houses that, that seemed to be needed by this thrifty I'd, royal family. I'd, I'd also Paddy, sorry, would you like to respond to it? Well, uh, yeah, the Prince of Wales was previously living in a set of apartments at St. James's Palace. Clarence House sits in the grounds of St. James's Palace, so you might regard it as all one palace. Clarence House obviously was previously the Queen Elizabeth Queen Mother's home. It is open to the public several months a year. It is, it is certainly an asset that is available to be used. It generates quite a lot of income for historic royal palaces, which is ploughed back into the upkeep of these physical institutions. The Prince of Wales has a private home at Highgrove, which he rents from the Duchy of Cornwall, and he, he has a house that he uses because the Queen allows him to up at Balmoral, those are his main residents. Is that too many? I don't know. It's probably um, that's your case, Yasmin. I mean, I understand that. But um, is it luxury? I mean, of course, it, you know, it's a splendid place, and, and, and you know, but he entertains a vast number of official engagements there, a lot of visitors. It's, I suppose, up to you and up to the, the media and certainly the public to decide how well the royal family should live. But um, I think you know he should live in circumstances befitting his role as heir to the throne and prince of the world. Catherine, do you want to make yes, a point? Yes, yeah, I was just going to make a very brief point, which is that this debate about finances always strikes me as a sort of post-Republican debate because we're essentially asking if we have a value-for-money monarchy. We're not actually asking about whether we should have a monarchy unless, <laughs> as you say, you want to reopen questions about land distribution back in the 14th century. Gentleman at the back. My name is Neil Stewart. Uh, to bring the debate right up to date, I wonder how much transparency... Um, the palace will be able to put into preparations for the next election. I should declare an interest. I was the political secretary to Neil Kinnock in 1992 when it was quite likely that there could have been a hung parliament. Most people don't understand that that's the moment when the monarchy becomes extremely important. Who gets the first chance to form a government? And there are still a lot of people in the Labour Party who are very sore about 1974, when Edward Heath was allowed to hang on and negotiate with the Liberals when everybody thought he should be turned out. If you look at the current state of the seats, it's quite possible that we could have a hung parliament, we could have one party, Labour or Conservative, larger than the other, while the other perhaps had more votes. Um, Is there any plans around the palace to publish how they will approach this, who will advise the Queen, what will be the usual channels, because having lived through it once, uh, I find it very, very difficult to see clearly. Now, this seems to be the next real test that the real institution of the monarchy will face. I wonder what is in hand and what's been reviewed about what's happened in the past. Penny, would you like to answer that question? That is an extremely interesting question, and I think it is equally an extremely difficult question for me to answer because uh, we are, of course, uh, talking hypothetically. Um, And I think uh, we will, uh, in fact, I know um, everyone will have to wait and see the outcome of the next election to see if indeed um, there is a hung parliament um, and um, uh, uh, procedures will have to be followed accordingly uh, with advice sought um, as, as to who can command a majority in the House of Commons um, and therefore um, head up an administration Um, and I think that's really all all that I could say at this stage on the record. I think that's a hugely important question. The Queen's had to intervene not in, um, I mean the example I'm going to cite isn't the one that you suggest but, but in picking Alec Douglas Hume for example all those years ago when He was unelected, he was the choice of Macmillan, the choice of the sort of good old boys of the Tory party and questions are are still asked as to whether the Queen, who was very young and very inexperienced then, was really involved in abetting Macmillan who was way outside his own constitutional remit. I think we're going to undoubtedly have a more political monarch next or a more explicitly political monarch at least in Prince Charles, and I think the sort of issues you raise are of huge importance. Thanks very much. Got a question up the front here, this lady. Good morning. My name's Gemma Lyons. I'm from Cass Business School in the city, and we were fortunate enough to have the Queen open one of our new buildings in uh, May 2003. 
I was absolutely staggered as the lucky, unlucky person organising that visit that the security, the catering, all of this huge arrangement was nothing in comparison to managing the internal lobbying that I had to put up with from people who were desperate to meet the Queen. And so my point is, and uh, a question, is that what really is missing, I believe, apart from, I agree with your Paddy's point, apart from perhaps on broadcast media, is the absolute love that people feel. It's quite extraordinary. I wasn't expecting it, not just from British um, members of our faculty and student body, but staggeringly from the international student body who were desperate even to stand five, six thick back in a crowd just to get a glance of the Queen. And my question is, moving forward, um, that amazing international brand and ambassadorial role that the Queen plays. I just wondered what, what state the, the panel felt that would be in when Charles succeeds and whether or not, um, because I feel as a marketeer that that international brand is absolutely invaluable and, and frankly wonderful to see. And I just wondered whether or not the panel feel that Charles is, as, perhaps this is one for you, Paddy, Charles is as, even vaguely as well placed as his mother to take that forward. Gosh, that's on the spot. Um, obviously, it's a, you know it's a situation that um, we hope is many years away, um, uh, and it would be very difficult to predict, you know, then what the situation situation will be like. I think there is probably more um, residual um, understanding and affection and support for the institution than probably we realise. I know it's very much personified in, in the Queen, but I think people have an innate understanding of the role the monarchy plays. They may not, if you stop them in the street and say, what does the, what does the, what, where does the constitutional position sit? I think people wouldn't give you a, a brilliant answer, but they would in, instinctively understand um, the, the points that, that Penny was making about continuity and unity and representing the nation and being non-political um, in that sense. Um, I, I, obviously, my job, in a way, our job, is to ensure that when the time comes that the Prince of Wales you know, um, becomes king with the full support and, uh, uh, of the nation. I can't predict that. I'd be foolish to. I'm confident that we will, we, we will have that, but it's going to be, you know, it's clearly a, um, something that we all think about. Um, complacency, as Penny said, is, is the enemy of us, and we must never be complacent. Um, uh, I'm, I'm confident that, that it will be a, 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 an occasion, of course, when there will be a lot of um, emotion around the morning for, for the Queen, and I think that will provide a, a, a big influence upon the support that the Prince of Wales will have as the new King. I'm not sure I'll be in this job when it happens. I'm pretty confident I won't, but um, I am hope to, in a small way, contribute it to being a successful occasion. Can I bring uh, Yasmin in to comment on that question, please? I, I mean, caution here. I don't think we should go away with this absolutely everybody loves the Queen. I think not even the most optimistic polls indicate that kind of um, um, gush. But I, like I said in my talk, it is absolutely clear to me it doesn't matter who holds the office, it is the office. And really, those, those wishful Republicans like Jonathan Friedland, who hope that the end of the Queen will be the end of royalty, are just simply wrong. And I think it will, the affection and the adoration will pass easily on to the next incumbent, and even more enthusiastically for William, which is why I'm so depressed. <laughs> <laughs> Gentlemen over there. Yes, hello. Uh, Charles Anderson uh, is one of Penny Russell Smith's uh, predecessors as press secretary to the Queen. You will know where I'm coming from. But I think what's come out this morning is that uh, as long as the monarchy is relevant to people's uh, concerns and interests, emotional feelings, then it will continue to prosper. And I think that's uh, what the Queen has shown uh, on her 80th, that the commitment she made to serve the country, whether her life be short or long, is quite evidently clear. I think Paddy has shown us uh, that um, with the Prince of Wales, his dedication, for example, to the, the work of young people and the place of young people in society is very fully understood and is highly relevant to the sort of society that we live in. So I think, really, the sort of comment that one would like to see, as Catherine Mayer said, some more serious comment... Um, that's evident uh, very much in, in broadcast uh, programs in television and in radio, which we haven't really talked about today. And it's evident uh, in a lot of the magazines and sort of more timeless pieces. The red top coverage will always take place, whether it's about the monarchy or about 
politicians or about footballers' wives or whatever, that will always be a feature. But as long as uh, the basic purpose of the monarchy is defined, as it has been and is, it will continue to remain popular. And I think uh, the sort of serious debate that surrounds it will always take place, but uh, provided that sort of clear purpose is there, then uh, that debate will be a very healthy one. Okay, thanks very much. And question over here, please. Andrew St. George. This, this is really for Mary and, uh, and Penny. I, clearly the monarchy and the media are kind of stuck with each other, a bit like the, the, the girls who married trees. <laughs> and uh, there's, there's my family out there, by the way. And you're quite right to mention the Alec Douglas Hume incident, which was so well portrayed in James Runcie's documentary about the Queen. And you, Penny, have this notion of how new media is perhaps starting to alter the way the game is played. Could the two of you perhaps talk about what is long-term and what is short-term in this game? Mary, do you want to take that first? It's a fascinating question, and I think one never knows, because... Uh, the, the, the sheer volatility of the coverage and, and the mood swings mean that what looks short-term one day or long-term one day can look incredibly short-term the next day. I mean, I take Paddy's point, you know, that the polling is remarkably even. I think there's some perhaps worry among young people and so on where the figures aren't, aren't quite so buoyant. My, my point is that we should plan much more as if these things are short-term. You know, the, the, the change in the monarchy, and there have indeed been huge changes during the Queen's reign, have almost all been um, reactive changes rather than proactive changes. So the Prince of Wales wants to marry a divorcee, a way is, is, is eventually found. You know, the Queen's a sort of great pragmatist. But... I, I think that because so little long-term planning has really been done, you know, sort of we'll wait to see what hits us and then, you know, we'll react to that. This may, in, in time, be a big disservice to the Prince of Wales, who I think is hugely underestimated and is a very charming man and, you know, very pleasant and very interesting and can, I think, react... You know, I've met him and I've seen him work a room as well and can, I think, uh, attract an enormous amount of support... But I think that his less attractive characteristics, shyness maybe, vanity, insecurity, extravagance, and unwillingness really to sort of reform at all, the fact that the ground's been so ill-prepared for him will make it difficult. So my rambling answer is that the monarchy tends to treat everything as long-term. It is, I suspect, much, much more short-term than they imagine. I don't think you can necessarily divide short-term from long-term. I think they're mingled together. And I think the common starting point where I agree absolutely with Mary um, is that it is very difficult uh, to, to, to predict... Um, the priorities that come along and the Queen herself I think made a very astute point about five or six years ago when she said that it was absolutely key to try and divine or interpret public opinion but sometimes it could be very difficult to discern those currents and which way um, public opinion was going. The monarchy is there as much I think to reflect as to lead uh, public opinion, um, because that is part of trying to keep up to date and relevant. I think you mentioned new media. Certainly the internet um, has had a, a huge impact on the way the public generally view institutions and, dare I say it, the way they view um, you know, what we would now term conventional media in terms of print. I mentioned citizen journalists. The internet is an enormously empowering tool for the public. Um, they've got huge sources of information at their disposal. They have a huge potential to offer their own comment on new and current affairs and this can go all the way around the world I'm, I'm stating uh, the obvious here but really I'm stating it to demonstrate that the institution and indeed commentators face the same sort of challenge albeit from very different directions But isn't there a sort of tension between the presentational and the real? I mean it's just I'm sorry it's a very short point it just seems slightly bizarre that you've got a podcasting monarchy which still supports and enshrines the principle of male primogeniture. You know, they, they, you just feel that the whole thing is 
diverging along rather strange lines. Well, could I just point out, you know, a, a number of good points have been made over the years about things like gender equality, Catholic exclusion. Um, this is an institution that's been shaped by Parliament, uh, not by the individual incumbents of the Crown. And uh, the Queen made very clear, for example, on the gender debate that the debate in the Houses of Parliament was something that should be looked at seriously. The formula is that she has no objection to it being discussed, but I do think we have to make a very clear distinction. I'm sure that that you you readily appreciate it, that there is a distinction between what's laid down by the Constitution and what would be, uh, although they're never expressed, the Queen's own personal views. And this goes to my my earlier point about constitutional reform, that that also the whole question about the Queen's potential (laughs) intervention in the case of a Parliament, any of these issues, they're actually issues for government and they need to be addressed by government. And that's also one of the areas in which the monarchy debate tends to let us down, is that instead of actually looking at what needs to be changed immediately to make this country make any sense at all, we kind of run into these sands of of should we have the monarchy or shouldn't we have the monarchy. I'm afraid we're going to have to wrap it up. So I just want to say um, thanks for everybody for coming. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed the debate as much as I have. And I'd like you all to thank our panellists today. Thank you.